The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. One of the most challenging and rigorous times in my life was during seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I was attempting to balance and uh, keep life balanced with two jobs and two kids and too many classes. And three nights to four nights a week, I was working in a hotel. I was working the night shift. And I'm amazed at people who can work a night shift and still keep their sanity. It is very challenging for me. Once, Ashley asked me to uh, stop by Trader Joe's on the way home from from work, and she had given me a handwritten note the night before with all of the things that she wanted me to pick up, this collective list of all the things I was to gather. So I took it with me to work, and in the morning I was working a couple extra hours. I got off at 9. I drove over as quickly as I could to Trader Joe's. I was trying to get in and get out before the crazy crowds began, and I was so tired and drained and stressed, and I was desperate to get home and sneak in at least two hours of sleep before I had to get up and go to Greek class. So I was trying frantically to grab everything on the list, racing through. I mean, I was like flying with the cart. Uh, through the store, and eventually I, I realized there's one item on this list. I cannot find it. I looked everywhere. I literally went back and forth through every single eye looking for something, a brand name, Jared Peaches. So I go through every single aisle, and finally I realize I have no clue where these things are. So I asked somebody in the store, where can I find Jared Peaches? And he said, I don't think we sell that. And I'm thinking in my mind, my wife knows Trader Joe's and what they stock far better than this guy does. So I'm sure they're here somewhere. So I start digging through everything I can find that is even remotely connected to fruit. And then I finally get frustrated and pull out the list and look at it and realize it's jarred peaches that I'm supposed to be looking for. Several weeks ago, I preached to you from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, which says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. At that time, I explained to you that the Greek word in this verse, which is used for self-control, is a very big word that contains an extensive meaning to it. It is the word sophronismos, which is used only one time in our Bible, which is right here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And today, we're going to see him continue to flesh out the details of what that word means. Paul is essentially saying to Timothy, in case case I didn't make myself clear, just to be sure that you can't misread this in any way, I want to reiterate exactly what I mean by this. And he proceeds to give Timothy examples and metaphors of the manner of life that Timothy and by extension all believers are supposed to live. So I would ask at this time, in just a moment, that you pray with me that God would reveal to us exactly what it is that we are supposed to be hearing from the word. And before we pray, I first want to note that you may have noticed a theme arising so far in our service today. We've been singing songs that talk about what if everything is stripped away from me and all I've got left is Jesus. Typically, when you say all I have and then you say whatever you say is a negative statement. All I have is $10. That's it. That's a negative statement. You're basically saying, I wish I had more. But if you say, all I have is Christ, then you are saying a positive statement. All I have is everything. You may have noticed so far the theme of persecution and trial and difficulty and suffering in the songs that we have been singing and in the prayers that we have been praying. And that's for a purpose. It's because we recognize the scripture teaches us that we are to expect 
to experience persecution and suffering as believers. But before we pray that the Lord would open our eyes to understand this, I want us to be aware of the fact that we minimally understand this because we minimally experience it. Those of us who have experienced rejection or people mocking us or treating us poorly for our faith, that is a form of persecution, but it does not compare to the weight of what Paul is experiencing as he is writing this, as he is in chains, as he is awaiting execution. It does not compare to the weight of what Timothy is about to experience as he is eventually going to suffer and die for his faith as well. It does not compare to the weight of the persecuted church that we have prayed for this morning. So I want you to understand that although we definitely do experience persecution and should prepare ourselves for it, we have been given such an honor by the Lord and a blessing not to experience the great weight and trial that many have around the world. I want you to take this time right now to pray and ask the Lord not only that he would open our hearts to understand, but if there is anyone here that doesn't know Christ, that he would open their understanding to believe. Let's pray. One of the best w- ways, Lord, that we can come to your word and, and learn it is by hearing the word preached. But learning in our mind does not necessarily mean that we have been changed in our heart. God, I am fully aware that much of what I am going to say is a form of reiteration, uh, repeating what I have said, just as Paul is repeating what he has already said. Lord, I realize that as I preach the word today, I have no authority or power to change the heart or mind of anyone in this room. But God, I pray that today that I would be able to speak clearly, not in my own power, but in your strength, and that by the Holy Spirit, minds would be changed, and much more importantly, hearts would be changed, so that our lives might be changed. God, it is a great importance of great importance today that your Holy Spirit come and be with us. For without him and without his presence, nothing will be different. But God, I ask that today your Holy Spirit would actively change us, transform us, God, we need you desperately this morning, and I pray that you would please be active in that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One of the ways that we can teach other people, and one of, I think, the superior ways of education is by example. You take somebody and you show them something so that they know exactly what to do or what not to do. For example, my son, Asaph, I go to him and I say, Ace, do you see that little boy over there who is throwing a tantrum? who is throwing a fit in the store, who is not getting what he wants, and so he's collapsing on the ground and crying and weeping and begging. Do you see how pathetic that looks? Do you see how selfish he is being? Do you see how rude it is to his mom? Yes, I do. Don't ever do that. That's a way to teach someone. Or alternatively, you can find a positive example and say, Ace, did you see how obedient the Arno kids were when they came over to our house the other day? Do you see how quickly they responded to their parents uh, when they said what to do, when they told them to get up and go? It was like that. Ace, I want you to be like that. You can teach well by example, and that is precisely what Paul is doing here at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Please follow along, beginning at verse 15. It says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service that he rendered 
at Ephesus. Now, I'm not going to give a lot of detail about the lives of these three people that are mentioned here. I'm not going to tell you a significant amount that's not here in these verses about them because this is the only place in the Bible that any of these people appear. So if I were to add much to it, it would all be conjecture. But what we can say for certain is that these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, were unfaithful men who faltered under persecution. These are clearly men that Timothy would have known. It's likely that most of us in this room have probably experienced somebody who claimed to be a believer, who said that they were a Christian, and then after a period of time left the church, wanted nothing to do with Christ or his people. It's unclear to me if these men fall into that category of being an apostate or if these men were temporarily given over to the fear of persecution and Paul's enemies. It is not clear, but what we do know is Paul is saying, Timothy, you know what these men did. Do not be like that. However, the positive example is given with much more detail. Onesiphorus was from Ephesus. He rendered a great deal of service there. Timothy, this letter is being written to him while he is pastoring in Ephesus. So he was this man's pastor. He would have known this man well. He is saying, you know how well this man served when he was among you. And Onesiphorus had traveled to Rome. This was very common for the business class. It was basically, if you had a business at some point, you were going to be around Rome. So he probably traveled there for business purposes. And when he arrived, he extended himself immensely for the sake of serving Paul. Paul says that he, quote, often refreshed me. And it says that he searched hard to find Paul, even though Rome was the most populous city in the world at that time, with roughly two million people living in a radius of roughly half the size of Manhattan. There were no skyscrapers back then. This place was packed full of people. Now you try this. Someday you go to a new city that's got two million people, go into Manhattan, walk around and say, I'm looking for this person and just try to find them. It is challenging. And this man tried until he found him and he served him and he worked hard to give of himself to care for Paul's needs. Paul then springboards directly from this example, Timothy, be like Onesiphorus. And he takes from that to telling Timothy this in the beginning of chapter two, verse one. You then, based upon what I'm telling you, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is telling Timothy, you be strong. But it's not enough to simply tell him to stand firm. He also tells him how to do it. So please don't overlook this seemingly parenthetical phrase and move past it too quickly. If you and I are going to stand firm, if we are going to stand our ground in the face of trial and persecution and suffering, we, know, we need to know how to do that. So here Paul says exactly how to do it with these words. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You are strengthened by his grace. Our strength comes directly from Christ. It is never derived from ourselves. It is not self-will or self-power. Genuine Christian tenacity is one of the many forms of God's grace that is given to us. Let's talk about grace for a minute. What is grace? Typically, when we come together as believers, we define it like this. We say it is unmerited favor, and that is an accurate way to describe it and to define it. 
generally speaking, when we talk about the grace of God, we are talking about the salvation that has come to us by God sending his son to die for sinners like you and I. We who are unworthy of being with God, we who have rebelled against him, who have rejected him, who have indulged in all sorts of sinful activity that he has declared that we should not touch, we have taken that and we have brought it into ourselves and not only done those things, but said, this is not what I do, this is who I am. We have identified with the evil one and run headlong in rebellion against Jesus. And it is when we were in that sinful state that God said in love, To his son, I am going to send you to these people. This was the plan before the foundations of the earth. I'm going to send you to live there, walk around with them, be around sinners without ever sinning. You are going to live a perfect life of obedience unlike they do. You are going to obey and fulfill every command unlike they have. You are going to succeed in every way that they have failed. And then you are going to experience the penalty not of obedience, but the penalty of disobedience. You are going to die for them. You are going to take upon yourself, bear in your body their sins by experiencing a crucifixion. You are going to the cross and there you will experience the wrath of man. But far more, Jesus, you are going to experience the wrath of the Father. I'm going to pour out my wrath on you and you will experience that so that those who come to you will never feel it at all. So today what we are talking about is grace, and that is the main form of grace, that Christ died for sinners so that we might never experience the judgment and the penalty of our sin. And Christ didn't remain dead. He rose again on the third day, justifying all who believe in him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that you are still in your sin, and the wrath of God is still waiting to burst like a cloud over your head. And it is during this life, during these days, that the Lord has shown you great, shown great patience towards you and long-suffering. And I pray that at this time you will hear about this grace of God. And if you don't know him, that you will run to him. For he is a good father who loves and who forgives. But that's not the kind of grace specifically that is being mentioned here. Generally speaking, when we talk about grace, we're talking about salvation. But the Bible has a lot of different ways that it utilizes the word grace. Grace just means the favor of God being shown to us in some particular way. So he is telling Timothy, you have already experienced salvation. Now there is another form of grace that he is talking about here, which is the ongoing ability to live for Christ. It is the ability to continually grow to be more like Jesus. So it is by God's grace that we are saved. But it is also by God's grace that we are made strong. It is by his grace that we are capable of obeying. And here we are called to lean into his grace. Don't back down from trials because it is in the very midst of the trials that God shows that even though you are weak, he is strong. If you don't believe me, ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God's power was made perfect in their weakness. Where do you find strength? Where does it come from for you? If you've ever attempted to fight sin in your life, in your own strength, in your own power, then you know it fails. It doesn't work. Even if you somehow find the willpower to stop doing something that you know is wrong, you cut off one area of sin. If you don't turn to Christ, you'll simply turn to another area of sin. Consider this. Imagine for a moment that we were to go down to the gym right now, and we were to put on a bench press 400 pounds, and I were to lay down on the bench, and I were to to take that weight and I were to lift it up just enough to get it over that lip and then drop it down onto my chest. 
and you were standing there next to me just saying, be stronger, pick it up, push that weight. I am literally going to die before I get that 400 pounds back up. I cannot do it. I do not have the physical muscles to do what I am being told to do, and neither do you. You cannot do it. It is impossible for you to do it. But if I had, for example, Rocky and Jacob standing next to me, holding the end of the bar, as I push with all my strength, they could pick up the rest of the weight, no problem. They could, they could carry that bar where I cannot. So Paul is explaining to Timothy, I want you to push that weight with all of the strength that you have, but I want you to realize the only reason that it is going to move is because of the power of God working in you. And Paul wants to ensure right up front that Timothy is not going to hear him saying, just try harder, just be stronger, just tough it out. That is not what he is telling Timothy here at all. He is saying it is only by God's strength that you can do this. It is only by the mercy and grace of God that you are going to make it through the trials and suffering that you are about to experience. And it is not like you're doing half of the work and he's doing the other half. The example that I gave of me pushing that weight is a terrible one. But if I had no arms, then it would be a better picture. I can't lift the bar at all. I can't even move. All of the pressure that is coming on that bar is from those who are lifting it from the side. Hear what he is telling Timothy. It is only by the grace of God that you succeed in any way. All of the strength that we find for obedience in the Christian life is found by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by delighting in the person of Christ, and by valuing God above all things. If you try to do it on your own, you're going to fail. So before he gets to any particular kind of motivation here, he tells Timothy, it is only by the grace of God that this will take place. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul commended Timothy to, quote, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It is vital that the truth is guarded. It is important that we keep good doctrine, good teaching of the scripture pure from any kind of false teaching. And now in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul is going to remind Timothy of the necessity to take that truth, the pure truth, and to pass that on to others. So he writes in verse 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And it's most basic context, this verse applies most particularly to those in the room who are pastors. Paul is describing the relay race that is the faith. Somebody passed the faith along to you. Somebody told you about Christ. And somebody had told them about Christ. And every one of us have a testimony that at some point goes back to these apostles. We heard about the gospel from them as it was passed down through time. The good news is going to be passed along or it's not. It is either going to continue on to more people or it is not. And here he tells Timothy, make sure that you are taking what you have learned and you are passing it along. Uh, I have uh, a teacher in high school. His name was Tom Wilmeth. He was actually a pastor at a Wesleyan church. And uh, I went to a Christian school, so they had a Bible class. And we had several pastors at the school. So every week we had a different pastor who would teach for the week of our Bible class. And um, one week he was the teacher and he had us reading and, and 
teaching us through some of the Psalms, and we were doing homework about the Psalms. And it became very clear very quickly that nobody in the class understood anything that he was talking about. And we definitely didn't understand what the Bible was saying. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. It's clear to me that you're not really paying attention to what these words say. So I want you to just take the entire class. I want you to read the verses. And then I want you to teach somebody else what those verses say. And it was that, that was the first time I realized that if you're going to try to teach something, you first have to have all of the pieces clearly put together in your mind. Because if you don't know what you're talking about, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that you don't really know what you're trying to say. So it is very important to understand what he's saying here in part is this. You need to take what you've learned and you need to give it away. And part of that is for yourself. Part of that is the fact that you develop a better understanding and a better commitment to the word as you are teaching and your training. But he is also saying this because this is the way by which the kingdom of God grows. And notice that Paul is talking here particularly to Timothy as a pastor. This was written to him, but it was also written for us that we might know what the Lord says. Paul never says anywhere in the New Testament, nor does any other author in the New Testament, that The calling to pass along truth by teaching is exclusively the calling of a few pastors. No, in fact, the New Testament says quite the opposite. It is the goal that every single believer will be brought to maturity in Christ. And part of that maturity is leading and bringing others along to maturity as well. Here are a few few ways that Paul explains this in the New Testament. Jim just preached through Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 17 recently. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and here it says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He's not talking to pastors here. He's talking to Christians, all Christians. It is your job to teach and admonish one another. That's you. So you're saying, um, well, who am I supposed to teach? Well, who knows less than you? Find somebody who doesn't know something that you know. And what if you say, but everybody here knows more than me? Well, maybe that's true. But one of the things that can happen is I can know a great deal about the Lord in one area, and you can know a great deal about the Lord in another area that I've never experienced, never thought about. And you can share with me what you've learned, and I can share with you what I've learned. And by that way, we mutually encourage one another, and we teach one another truth. And also by that, we can sometimes see well, what you're saying doesn't quite align with what the Bible says. So as you're attempting to teach, you can also be corrected, which is here what we see, admonishing one another. These things go hand in hand. In 2 Timothy, he's speaking to pastoral training, so he singles out men. But ladies, this is also a command for you. For example, this is just one of many. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he speaks to older women. What does he mean, older women? Well, here he's probably talking mostly to those who are over the age of 45 or 50, but he's speaking generally to people who are older than other women. In other words, if there's someone younger than you, this applies to them. Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. You're not off the hook, ladies. You are called to be teaching and instructing and taking what you have learned from the word and sharing. 
The ultimate goal is spelled out for us in Colossians 1.28 when he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Why do we do this? Please understand something very important here. I love preaching the word. I know for a fact that most of you will not remember anything I've said by next Sunday. For the most part, a lot of what I'm saying is going to just fall away over time. If all you get from the teaching of the word is on Sunday morning, you are going to starve spiritually. You need input from many sources at many times. And so one of the things the Bible teaches us is that as a body, we are called to constantly promote the the scripture to one another and put it in front of one another's face and talk to one another and spur one another on towards love and good works. And I want you to understand this is very important that it is not just my responsibility to present one another, all of you mature before Christ, although I do believe that is my calling as a pastor. It is also your responsibility to seek for the maturity of yourself and for others within the body. Each one of you is responsible to the other. There is no member of the body that is without purpose or meaning. You have a calling to serve each other in this church. So I am calling on you now. Take what you have heard from the scripture and don't just bottle it up and keep it in. We live in a very individualistic society and it's easy to do that. But take what you are learning and teach and share and take what you are being given by the Lord and give it away. It is at this point in the passage that Paul shifts a little bit. And I love what he does here. He transitions to utilizing metaphors. Metaphors are are great. They're a great way to teach because they display for us the meaning of what he is saying even more clearly. So he gives three metaphors to emphasize the kind of Christian living that he is commending Timothy to do. We are all going to spend the next however long this sermon is going to go, considering these three things very carefully. So I want you to follow along with me and look at the very first of these three metaphors, verses 3 through 4. It says this, Share in suffering. This has been a great big theme that he's been starting all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, that is followed all the way through till now. Share in suffering. How? As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he defines the role of a soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Being a soldier is hard. How many in the room have ever served in the military? How many here have? John, you're the only one. Does anyone go to boot camp just because they want to? No, it's not fun, right? It's not fun. Nobody likes getting woken up in the middle of the night. Nobody likes long marches. Nobody likes standing on the front line in the dark, wondering if there's a bullet coming their way. Nobody likes to be a soldier. And in these days, being a soldier was a very difficult profession. I believe even more challenging than it was now. They didn't have button warfare. They didn't have drones. If they were going to fight a battle or stand guard, they were going to be physically present, carrying a sword and a spear and a shield. And Paul is reminding Timothy that it is important you see yourself like a soldier. You are on duty. It is not a walk in the park to be a Christian. It is being presented here as a lifelong responsibility of always being ready for battle. Lazy soldiers die. Unprepared soldiers die. Soldiers that don't care for their weapons or who underestimate their enemies, what happens to them? They die. 
And Paul is reminding Timothy that he is not above being in the trenches. It is his responsibility as a Christian to stand shoulder to shoulder with his brothers in Christ. And even if all of them retreat, he is to remain and stand firm. And he is to do this specifically because of the one that he serves. Paul says to be a good soldier, don't miss this, of Christ Jesus. Let me take a side note here. I think this is important. I I think most of us would probably not confuse this, but it's important for me to say, I want to be clear, this has been confused by many people in the past. This is not a command to fight a literal war in the physical world. He is not telling you to go buy a sword or a gun. God is not telling you that you are supposed to physically fight his enemies. You might think that this is obvious, but there are many throughout history who have waged war under a banner of the cross thinking that they were fighting for Jesus. But that is not what the Bible is teaching us here. This is not God's holy war to go fight a physical battle. The only holy war that we are called to fight is against our own sin by the process of sanctification and against the evil one, and we are to do that by prayer. As it says in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So if you want to talk about just warfare, that's good and important. I think the Bible actually speaks a lot to how a Christian should perceive war. But that is not what's being talked about in this text. There is a lot to be said about spiritual warfare, about our battles against the evil one and the way that we pray and we stand as a Christian in full armor. But this passage is actually looking to another aspect of what it means to be a soldier. It means that you don't desert the troops. It means that you don't run away when things get hard. It means that you don't desert. It means that you suffer alongside others. It means that he is telling Timothy, you are not above the difficulties or challenges or persecution that other people will face. Timothy, suffer with me. Suffer with the believers. Expect it. And when it comes, don't be upset that it's here. Expect it. You are a soldier. Paul often will refer to other members of the faith as a good soldier. For example, he does that in the beginning of the book of Philemon, verse 2. Verse 4 adds, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that we as a good soldier should not be involved in civilian pursuits? The range of ways that scholars have understood this is pretty baffling to me, actually. There, There are so many different interpretations of what exactly Paul is getting at. Some believe that it means that you shouldn't watch television. Others think that it means that you shouldn't have any unsaved friends. Other people say, say that it means that Christians should never be involved in politics, maybe not even vote. However, I don't think that any of this is precisely what Paul is getting at here. In fact, I think the context makes Paul's original intent pretty clear. Civilian affairs is a way to speak about being distracted, about getting involved in stuff that doesn't ultimately matter. Civilian affairs here is speaking to Timothy and saying that Christians are not supposed to be distracted by meaningless trivialities. So please understand this is important. It is possible to be informed about politics without making politics your God. I think I've told you this before, but in 2008, I was here in New York and I was right after the election, I was in Manhattan and there was a man who was um, preaching the gospel. He was, I wouldn't preach the gospel the way that he was. But we were down in uh, the south part of Manhattan, and 
he was pretty fiery and he's just telling people that they need Jesus. And there was a man who stood across from him and we were all kind of walking on the same sidewalk and he just basically said to the guy, look, I don't need Jesus. I got Obama. And I mean, regardless of whether or not you voted for Obama, it doesn't matter. What does matter is the fact that this man is now viewing Obama as his Messiah, as his God. And we could laugh at that, but how often do Christians do that? How often do people view a political leader as their messianic figure? There is no president in this country that is going to save America. There is no one who is capable of being in that office that could save your soul. And that's true for the Supreme Court, by the way, as well. It's important for us to understand that we cannot allow ourselves to be entangled in that in such a way that it detracts from our love of Christ or that it sets all of our focus or attention on that. If you find yourself being sinfully angry, turn off the news. If you find yourself being overly frustrated and constantly desiring nothing more than to yell at the person of the opposite party, then there's something wrong. If your primary message is one of be either Democrat or Republican, you're getting something very backwards here. Our message is the kingdom of God. And that is what we are to hold to most fervently. It is possible to spend time with unsaved people and to have unsaved people in your home or to go eat with them or spend time with them without yourself losing your faith. I don't think this is what this is talking about at all. It's not saying that Christians should seclude themselves and be apart from any other part of society. The monks tried that. It definitely didn't work. It's also possible for us to enjoy entertainment in a balanced and healthy way without that becoming an idol that elevates itself to a place above the Lord. So what does it mean? If it doesn't necessarily mean those things, then what does it mean? Well, I'm not saying it doesn't include those things. It may for you. But Paul is not giving specifics here. Instead, he is being very general because it is possible for literally any good thing to be turned into an idol. It is possible for anything to become an unhealthy distraction for you. So a good soldier will examine his or her own endeavors and ask, does this help my walk with Christ or detract from it? Does it lead me to obedience or disobedience? Does this make me love Jesus more or love him less? Perhaps it would be helpful for you to take inventory of your life and of your actions and examine how you spend your time and all of your mental energy and ask yourself, am I being distracted? What is my main hope and purpose in life? Am I being distracted by these civilian affairs? And if so, replace them with meaningful forms of spiritual service to the Lord. The second metaphor that Paul gives here is the metaphor of an athlete. So we talk about the good soldier. Now we talk about the athlete. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I think it's pretty clear that Paul was a sports fan. He uses athletic metaphors on multiple occasions in the scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9, for example, he speaks about a runner. Running is the original sport. And he also speaks about boxing, that he doesn't box like somebody just punching the air, but he uses meaningful blows. He also uses the analogy of wrestling in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And I assume that most of us here, probably all of us, or at least the majority, watch at least some part of the Olympics when they come on every two years. Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics. We enjoy and are drawn to excellence when it comes to these kinds of sports. In fact, there are a lot of sports. I didn't even know they were a thing until I saw the Olympics. Curling is a thing. Who, 
Who in the world would have thought that curling was a thing? But we have found ways to compete with one another, and sometimes in very odd ways. And nobody wins, doesn't matter what part of the Olympics you're watching, nobody wins by accident. Nobody wins an Olympic event because they woke up one morning and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop by the Olympics today, and I'm going to enter my name, and I'm just going to see if by the off chance I can actually win a gold medal. That does not happen. So when somebody is competing in an athletic event, it could be skiing or it could be the high jump or it could be swimming or whatever it is, they might only compete for a couple of minutes or even a couple of seconds that you're watching. But each one of those seconds reveal thousands of hours of training, both physically and mentally for this event. And so by nature of using the metaphor of an athlete, Paul is reiterating here the notion of dedication, Are you dedicated to the task? He's talking about commitment and he's talking about hard work, but he says it in a way that is very interesting to me. He speaks in terms of disqualification. You cannot win unless you compete according to the rules. That's the only way to win. What rules is he talking about? Well, everyone during the first century would have known what he was talking about because there were only three main rules that existed in the Olympiad and the Isthmian Games. There were only three main rules that everyone had to adhere to. And everyone who lived around the Mediterranean Mediterranean basin would have known them. First, you had to be born a full-blooded Greek. If you were not born a full-blooded Greek, you could not be involved. So here we could argue that Paul is saying you must be genuinely saved. You must be a full-blooded Christian. You must be born again. Second, you had to follow specific rules of the specific sport in which you were competing. Like, do not go out of bounds. If you're running, don't touch the other runners. They're very limited rules for each of the, of the, the different games that they played. But it's important for us to see this is true for us as well. All true Christians will grow in sanctification and we are made into the likeness of Christ, which means obedience to him. And if there's never any change, if there's never any growth, it is evidence that you are not truly saved or to use Paul's terminology, you are disqualified. If you've been going on and on and on in your life for years and you have never once come to a place where you've said, I have to defeat this sin, this sin is destroying me, I have to confess and repent and move away from this. If that has never happened for you, Paul is saying here, it's likely that you are disqualified. You're not a genuine Christian. Um, One of the best evangelists in our church who's kind of under the radar is my wife. And she shares the gospel regularly and consistently. And uh, she does it in places that I'm just baffled. Like she has an ongoing relationship with uh, uh, one of the older managers at Trader Joe's where she spends a lot of time and she shares the gospel with this person. Um, she has an ongoing relationship, uh, with people that she comes into contact when she shops regularly. She hates that I'm saying this probably right now, but even first time conversation, she came home from Ikea yesterday and told me she talked for a long time with this woman about the Lord. And as she was explaining that she had shared the gospel with this woman for a long time, she said, she said, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I have no need of the church. I have no need to be involved with them. And she said a lot of, uh, of things that I think are very far off. But involved in this, it seems that she feels she doesn't need to be changed or sanctified anymore, that she's reached a level of being in a right relationship with God, and she's done. There's no more growth that needs to take place. According to what we're reading here, that's disqualification. It's a revelation that in your heart, you don't see yourself for the need of being more like Christ. You think that you're holy as it is. That is disqualifying. 
So that is the second thing that is the second rule that we see here in the Isthmian Games. The third one, I think, is probably most likely what Paul is talking about. So it's possible he's talking about being a full-blooded Greek, meaning that you need to be truly saved. It's possible here that he's talking about the fact that you need to follow according to the specific rules of engagement for the race that you are running or whatever you're doing. But it's very possible and likely, I think, that he's talking about the third of the rules. The third rule was this. In the Isthmian Games, if you wanted to be involved, there's something that you had to do. You had to go stand before a statue of Zeus, and you had to declare with all of your heart, I have spent the last 10 months of my life dedicating myself to being trained and prepared for this race. And it was possible that somebody could come forward and show, give proof or evidence by way of multiple witnesses, this person has not spent the rest, the last 10 months training. This person was on vacation for two months with me on the Amalfi Coast. He was definitely not training, I can tell you. If that were to happen, you would be immediately disqualified. It is very possible that this is what he has in mind. The idea of ongoing training and preparation. He is telling Timothy, you need to be prepared. You need to make sure that you are running like an athlete who constantly prepares, who is putting every ounce of energy that they have into winning that prize. In other words, Paul is once again telling Timothy that he must be rigorous in his dedication and daily practice of knowing and loving and following Jesus. Which now brings us to the third and final metaphor that Paul uses, which is the metaphor of a farmer. We read in verse 6 these words. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, this metaphor speaks to rewards that come from diligent labor. The metaphor earlier of the athlete spoke to the crown that you win. That's speaking about when we end the race, when we enter into heaven. He's going to use that terminology again. I haven't dug down on it because in chapter 4, he's going to reiterate that and we'll expound upon it when we get there. But now he's speaking about practical outworking of our seemingly menial efforts. In 1840, 69.9% of the American workforce were farmers. In 2008, roughly 1.6% of the American workforce were farmers. And I think it is safe to say that in a room of people in Nassau County, most of us don't really get it in terms of what farming is. The other day, our RGF Kids Group actually went to a farm, an orchard, and we paid them to do their job of picking apples. We don't get it. We don't understand here what farming is all about. But I grew up in Kansas near a lot of farmers. I was not a farmer myself, nor was my father. But I can tell you that those people who are work really, really hard. And they are up long before the sun every single day. And they work outside no matter how hot it is, no matter how cold it is. They do that or their crops or their livestock will die. They work really hard. But we live in a microwave society where everything is fast for us and easy for us. And if you want something, you buy it. And if you don't want it anymore, you throw it away or you upgrade it or you replace it. Paul is asking something radical of us here by saying that we are to be like a farmer. He is telling us something absolutely different than what we experience in the Christian life on average here in America. He is saying, I want you to be consistent and faithful every day in the most simple and the most menial tasks of life. Do you remember what Paul said about Onesiphorus? He said about him that he would daily care for Paul. Onesiphorus probably didn't think much about that. He probably didn't think a lot about it when he brought food or water to Paul. 
He didn't think he was doing something great. didn't think he was doing something incredible. But because of his daily consistent efforts, his name is in the word of God and will be remembered for eternity. But he was just being faithful. This should remind us that the little things that you do or don't do really matter. Every second of every day belongs to Jesus. Every breath that you breathe is an opportunity to worship Jesus. And every time that you are in rush hour traffic, or every time that you clock in at work, or every time you have a little extra time on your hands, or every time that you do anything, you are called to be consistent and diligent and faithful to do so in a way that is worshipful to the Lord. You can, you can worship God by leading music. You can worship God by cleaning a toilet doesn't matter what you're doing. It matters where your heart is. This is very important for us to see that the little things matter and that those who are faithful are the ones who will receive the blessing. It doesn't mean that you have a high position of authority. It means that you take the position that you have been given and you serve the Lord diligently and consistently and faithfully. Moms and dads, being faithful and consistent with your kids is hard to train them up in the way that they should go. Workers who have a job, it is difficult when everyone else is lazy not to be lazy. It is challenging for us to do this, but we are called to. Those who are faithful receive a blessing. John MacArthur explains it this way in his commentary on 2 Timothy. He says, many Christians' lives are like the farmers. Although there may be occasional times of excitement and special satisfaction, the daily routine is often in itself unattractive and unrewarding. But whatever their day-to-day responsibilities may involve, all faithful believers are promised God's blessing and reward. We might be underpaid or treated unfairly by our boss or fellow employees and misunderstood or underappreciated by fellow Christians. But Christ's reward to his faithful disciples is never deficient, never unfair, never late, and never omitted. We are sowing expecting a harvest. We are putting labor in to be more like Christ and we are expecting to receive the blessing of his joy so that we might look more like him. We are promised that when we discipline ourselves to honor Christ, even in the small things and the seemingly unimportant things, it matters. And your daily disciplining of yourself to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself will result in abundant spiritual harvest. So Paul closes this whole thing out by telling Timothy this in verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that's how I want to leave this with you. Think over what he is saying. Earlier this week, my laptop died. I couldn't get it to turn on. It was just completely dead. I didn't drop it or put it in the bathtub or anything. I I couldn't figure out why it's not working, so I took it to the Apple store and I Asked them what's going on here. And, and the guy gave me some quick diagnostic things. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And I said, how are we supposed to know which one of those things it is? He said, well, there's no way to know unless we just take the whole thing apart and inspect it piece by piece. I said, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. And thankfully, they're doing that for me. But I want you to understand that that's kind of what Paul is saying here. This is not a one-time Sunday morning. You hear the word and you just walk away. This needs deep inspection. Get under the hood and do some digging and see, does my life line up? Are you like the soldier? Are you like a good soldier who is desirous to suffer alongside other believers? 
Are you willing to put yourself out to help them? Are you willing to lift their needs above your own? Do you go out of your way to seek for opportunities to serve them? Or are you just trying to be comfortable? Are you like the athlete who trains rigorously seeking to win the prize? Does your life reflect a passion of chasing after comfort or after Christ? Are you like a consistent farmer who is rising every day with a purpose to reap a bountiful spiritual harvest? Or are you just trying to get by? I don't really need to read my word or be in prayer because I'm doing just fine. I can make it from day to day without that. That's pride. Let's all examine ourselves carefully under the careful light of scripture to see how we can be more faithful. And as we are striving to lift that weight, you need to remember it is not you, but the Lord that will do the work in us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you, God, that You have told us even here that we are to strive to walk in step with the Spirit, but that we cannot do it without your strength. Lord, I pray for each person here that knows you, that we will be a good soldier suffering for the sake of Christ. I pray that each one of us would be a a good athlete who runs the race with endurance. And just like Paul will say at the end of this book, that we would finish strong, that we would do what we are called to do, and that we would not get to the end of our days and say, I just wished I had done more for Jesus. God, I pray that we would be able to live our lives like a consistent farmer who works each and every day to grow in our spiritual walk with Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ in a saving way. May they know your saving grace. May they hear what we have seen today in the gospel, and may they believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. Father, we thank you for all that you have said to us. Help us now to go and to think over all that we have heard. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.